Preferred Capital Funding presents the Result Podcast, a podcast where trial lawyers share a recent verdict or settlement and discuss how they achieved the result. And now a few words from Tony Romanucci about how Preferred Capital Funding has helped him, his clients, and his firm. Thanks, Jason. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many ways Preferred Capital Funding has helped our clients. But most recently, in a shining example of what preferred capital can do for our clients is after a significant jury verdict in Cook County last year, preferred capital was right there to help these people out with the needs that they that they had the most. And that was helping them buy new vehicles, help them with their housing, help them with their daily living expenses, which even included food. Ultimately, the case wound up settling during the time frame that preferred capital was funding them. And that's just one of the many examples in which PCL is so vital and integral to our practice. Today, the result is happy to welcome attorney Andy Young. Andy is the managing partner of the Cleveland location of the firm Leiserman and Young. Andy focuses his law practice on helping victims and survivors of truck crashes. His clients are pedestrians, bicyclists, motorcyclists, motorists, and even truck drivers, all involved in catastrophic and fatal truck crashes. Andy and three other attorneys at Leiserman Young presently hold Class A commercial driver's license, and Andy also personally owns a Peterbilt 359 semi-tractor and a 45-foot car hauling trailer. This experiential knowledge makes him a formidable opponent in cross-examining a truck driver and truck company safety and administrative personnel. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Jason. I appreciate having the, the opportunity to be here today. Well, Andy, as uh, you've seen from our prior couple of episodes here, we always start with the finish. So why don't you share with us what was your result and the basic facts of the case? So I was trying to figure out which of the two. I had two recent settlements in the last two weeks, uh, one for 2.095, so 2095000 and another one for two and a half. I thought the probably the one that was better to discuss would be the two million ninety five thousand dollar one because of the complexity and some of the 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 things that we learned that, that many of your listeners can definitely use in everyday practice. Wonderful. So, what give us a little bit about the case? So, the two million dollar ninety five thousand dollar case was there were multiple parties involved. It was a dump truck uh, following another dump truck. The the lead dump truck had broken down once and pulled over the side of the road. The following dump truck from the same company stopped to help, but they were ordered to get back on the road. And while they were back up on the road, the lead dump truck continued to break down further and had what was called a turbo blow, creating a big smoke screen that caused dump truck number two to stop. And then our people, unfortunately an elderly couple, ended up underneath the back of the second dump truck. Uh, and it, it led to a fatality and a pretty significant injury of the passenger of that dump of, of the car that was hitting the back of the dump truck. And I'm sorry, I think you said, but I didn't catch it. Was this a verdict or a settlement? Uh, this was a settlement. And uh, anytime that you have a car strike in the back of a vehicle, defense counsel almost has like rocket fuel in the veins thinking they're going to defend this case to the hilt because uh, most people think when a car hits the back of a uh, any vehicle, if the, if the striking vehicle is the one that's at fault for the crash. Uh, but here we had this breakdown scenario and what I call, and this is a litmus test that I use for all case review. It's called uh, who created the hazard versus who confronted the hazard. So any comparative fault type situation, if you have a, a truck company or a driver doing something really stupid uh, that uh, there causes the truck to be going very slow on the roadway or stopped or breaking down or otherwise, uh, then 
they created the hazard for other motorists that other, the other motorists have to then yield, move out of the way, break suddenly, or end up underneath the back of, of one of these trucks. So the complicating factor of this case is uh, it has led to uh, a lot of discovery that uh, led to other parties being involved because the dump truck company only had a million in insurance, but it was hauling asphalt for a, a road construction crew. And so since it was hauling asphalt, it was a time and temperature sensitive load. And the construction crew really was the, the primary employer. So there was an agency theory issue uh, that ultimately led us to get access to money in excess of the 1 million that was available and through the, the secondary layer or the, 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 the true employer, which was the construction company. Now, how did the defense side approach this? I see how you went about it. How do you think they came at you from the other side? Well, they originally uh, came at us, of course, saying, hey, this is an assured clear distance ahead scenario. Uh, there was an interesting fact involved in the case. There was some fog, and they, they, they originally the two dump truck drivers were trying to blame fog and not smoke on the crash itself, but it, it came to light uh, through other witnesses that, that really the dump trucks broke, the one dump truck broke down and created the smoke screen that our people confronted. So I think they were a bit surprised that how we let off, and this is the recommendation I, I have for all of the listeners, is you really should take your trooper and independent uh, lay witnesses first and get them in, in the can or on deposition and on video because they can really frame the whole case. So the first person we took the deposition of was the trooper in this case, and the trooper gave great language that was punitive type language that I didn't even have to ask the punitive question that typically gets objected to is, wasn't this knowingly intentional? knowing and intentional what they did. I didn't even have to inject that into the case. The trooper gave me that already when I just simply asked, well, what happened here, trooper? Why was this other dump truck added to the police report? And he says, well, if they broke down once like the witnesses say, then it was knowing and intentional when they got back on the road, creating a hazardous situation for all motorists. So it was a, it, the, the best tip or takeaway from this particular case, and the reason why I chose this one to talk about, is take that trooper first, take the motor carrier enforcement officer's deposition first, and the lay witnesses depositions early and what's really cool is you can do that while the discovery is pending so for example we often issue our interrogatories and production requests they offer up their interrogatories and production requests to us there's a fight back and forth for 90 plus days you don't need to wait till the end of that fight to take the depositions of these troopers and these lay witnesses who are were on scene you can develop that aspect of the case up front whereas i think way too many probably 90 to 95 percent of attorneys wait to do the depositions of the defendants and wait for their clients' depositions to be taken and then go to the independent witnesses after everything's said and done. But that trooper's first deposition saying that this was knowing and intentional ended up marinating on the defense side of it to the point that they were very concerned early on. Plus, I played back this clip in what's called a picture-in-picture type of a video format to all the various witnesses of the defendants and asked them if they agreed or disagreed with the language, and they pretty much were stuck having to agree or look foolish by disagreeing with this particular language of what was happening. So it was great to use that trooper's own statement to develop this theme of how knowing and intentional it was that these guys already had a broke down truck and yet put it back on the road, creating the mayhem that resulted for our clients. Outside of the trooper, what other expert or experts do you think were integral to this case? Uh, well, we had so we had a there's a DOT compliance officer type expert that's always key. There's a gentleman by the name of Steve Bellius who I use 
here in Ohio in particular. He's a former motor carrier enforcement officer. What was key about him was he actually knew some of the, the motor carrier enforcement officers that were on scene. When I say motor carrier enforcement officer, that's the person like the DOT or the Department of Transportation person who uh, inspects the vehicle. The second dump truck had violations that would have rendered it out of service regardless of the crash damage that was done to the second dump truck. He said it was illegal on the roadway. So this particular expert was helpful for us to to tie things in a bow for us and, and bring in, in a, into uh, reality, the various 640 infractions of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations that are available and the ones that were specific to this particular incident. Uh, I think when you're dealing with a trucking industry type case, you, not, you, you can't just go with the standard crash reconstructionist. They're very helpful, but you really need an industry expert every single time. Did you have an offer going in? No, there was no offer. In fact, they, I think they were truly... Uh, like I said, had rocket fuel in their veins trying to defend this particular case saying, oh, well, you had old people we're in the back of a dump truck in, uh, in the fog. Why do we need to pay you anything in this case? And slowly but surely as the case, and it's typical, either case gets better or gets worse as the witnesses and depositions go forward. So my recommendation is why not develop your themes early with those independent witnesses? Even EMS and EMT can help with those uh, those various themes, you learn things that ultimately drive the value of the case, whereas a case can blow up after uh, all the depositions are done of the defendants and the plaintiffs by a simple lay witness. I always think that a lay witness trumps the best expert. So, in fact, I've had that experience happen at trial and not in well for me at trial where a lay witness, I thought I had the best expert, explained the math, it was all logical, all rational, but the lay witness just made an emotional connection with the jury and was independent and a nurse in a nursing uniform that then blew up what otherwise would have been what should have been what logic and rationale would have dictated. So, you know, I think that the defense was very concerned, thinking they were going to definitely trump us on this. And then in addition to that, I think the, the asphalt construction company thought, no way, not our truck, not our driver. We're not going to be found responsible. We did a proactive motion for summary judgment uh, on the various 14 factual issues that we've identified through Ohio law in particular, involving agency that goes beyond just simply who's the, who hired the truck driver and whose truck company truck it was. Uh, so we were pretty successful. We took, I don't know, 20 plus depositions in this thing. And I think at the end of the day, ended up with a, a really good result that uh, helped out our clients greatly. Uh, sounds like it. What, what was your demand when you were doing the approach? Well, the demand was substantial early on, but we also knew that the underlying primary dump truck company only had a million dollar policy. Uh, so, I mean, we were we, we made an eight figure plus type of a demand, which was, I think, got them thinking that they're going to potentially get a substantial verdict against them. Even the, the secondary or the hidden motor carrier, the asphalt construction company, dump truck company was very concerned. Uh, so we actually they they actually pressed for a demand in uh, the jury interrogatories in a way that I hadn't seen before. And we put out one for the passenger and one for the driver well into the mid eight figures, uh, not quite in the upper eight figures, but well into the mid eight figures. And I think that that got their attention and the attention of the higher ups because the construction company itself was a multi billion dollar global entity. And uh, we were dealing with their general counsel out of Atlanta ultimately, and then got them to pay uh, what they what was essentially coming out of their pocket uh, from what we were to understand uh, much more than they, they ever anticipated we were ever going to get on this thing ever. So I always find it so interesting that you and a couple other attorneys in your firm 
hold CDLs. How much, how helpful is that to you? And I know that you're passionate about trucks, period, and cars, but how helpful is it to you to have that level of expertise when you're approaching cases like this? So it's, I think it's crucial. I think I recommend to anybody and everybody to get their commercial driver's license. Uh, there was an attorney, a firm I used to work for that I tried to encourage the young man to get his CDL. It, it didn't happen until I left the firm. I think he's, he thinks that it was in, incredibly helpful to get the, the attorneys in our firm that have it. It just allows you to frame things in a very experiential way. You understand things a lot more. You think about some of the nuances and subtleties that'll even blow open a case or blow up a case. So, uh, and the fact that I drive on a regular basis, it, you know, it's interesting. I don't really think about a case that I don't yet have when I'm driving the, the truck, let's say a year ago, but when I'm driving the semi truck, which I got to go pick it up from the shop tomorrow, when I'm driving the, the semi truck now, I think about the cases I currently have. For example, I had a, a, defend, a, a, a truck driver said he was just getting into third gear, but he was going 20 miles an hour. Well, that's impossible. He's going actually between seven to 14 miles an hour, seven at the lower RPMs, 14 at the upper, and there's no way he was going 20. Their accident reconstructionist adopted the 20 but that, and then put our car at a much higher speed otherwise as a result of the impact damage. But when you backed it down to seven, the, the seven to 14, which is what just getting into third gear means, it put our car within the speed limit. So it was one less thing that they could hang their hat on. And I don't, I wouldn't have been able to come up with that theory had I not done this. In addition to that, you know, stopping for a green light, the stopping distances and all the different, or stopping for a red light, a stale green light is the issue that I was talking about. So when you have a stale green light, you have to prepare to stop, which means you actually have to gear down. So if the light's just turning yellow or a truck's going through a yellow, he shouldn't be doing that. He should already be in the lower gears ready to stop because you can control the speed of your truck versus through the gears and, the, and running through the gears and going down in the gears. And these are things that you just don't know if you've never driven a semi-truck because you're talking about 10 speeds to 13 speeds type trucks. And then in addition to that, managing space around these vehicles that you come up with definitely better theories. And then in addition to that, the truck driver realized, oh my gosh, this guy knows what the heck he's talking about. More so, the truck driver realizes, I know more than what his, his own attorney is talking about because his own attorney doesn't have a CDL and realizes, oh my gosh, how come I, this guy knows more than my own attorney. And then we end up really getting pretty far with where we need to go on things and getting con concessions that I think most ordinary attorneys probably don't get because they don't have that class ACDL or experience driving truck. That's just such a nice curveball to throw in. I'm sure that they can't see that coming. Well, typically they don't see it coming. I mean, I think they've come to expect it now or they prep now, but there's still attorneys that I come across that haven't looked up what my background is or don't really know. And it surprises me. And I don't go in there. I still have truck drivers say, well, you've never driven a truck. And I just let it go. And I just get into the details. So they realize I probably have driven a truck instead. So, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. Andy, is there anything we've missed here? I, I just want to say thank you. Everybody keep doing the big fight. I think the biggest thing is, you know, if you really want to win your cases, you got to turn your clients from victims into victors. I think there's a lot of talk about that right now. I do that with a ton of safety advocacy stuff that I do in Washington, D.C. and otherwise. Happy to talk to people individually on how to make that happen so that then they can turn uh, their client story into what was just a horrific situation into something that has persevered into the greater good, reducing suffering on a greater scale for all, all motorists, and the including the jurors. And I think the jurors really respond to that when they hear that, oh, wait a sec, this person's trying to make the road safer for me and my family. 
So I think that's a really important concept, and I'm happy to talk to people about that and be available uh, whenever anybody wants to contact me. Andy, I truly appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate the invitation, Jason. I really appreciate all that you guys do for our clients, and thank you for having me. 